is God's last word before the opening of the New Testament. And in this final chapter, it's only six verses long. But it's not short on biblical truth. In fact, I, I thought of it today of just trying to... What, what word picture could I give to, to describe what these six verses are? And the best word picture I could imagine was, if you've ever seen a fruit tree and you're just overwhelmed by the abundance of fruit hanging on that tree. Or if you've ever seen a grapevine and you say, man, that grapevine is full. Just overabundance filled with grapes. That's, that's kind of the way I view the last chapter of the Old Testament or the last chapter of Malachi. As I have studied these six verses, as I have read these six verses, I, we could take easily two sessions to deal with these six verses. There is so much there, and it is so good. And so I'm excited to be teaching to you tonight the last chapter of the Old Testament. Now, I want to begin by asking you this question. This is the reason I'm asking you to make sure your Bibles are closed, and those that are watching online, uh, if you'd close your Bibles as well. I want to ask you a question, and it's, I, I want to... I want to acknowledge that probably your answer is going to be a guess. And I will say to you that prior to studying today, I would not have known the answer to this question either. Okay? So it's okay if you don't know the answer, but I do want you to guess. What would you say? Just a guess. And you, I'm going to ask you to talk to a neighbor. What would you say is the last word of the Old Testament? Or the last word of the book of Malachi? The very last word of the book of Malachi. Now, again, Bible's closed. Don't, I'd ask my wife that tonight, and she was flipping through like this, trying to look without me knowing. Don't, don't be like her. Don't cheat, okay? So, here's what I'm going to do. 30 seconds. Talk to anybody you want to talk to. What would you guess the very last word of the Old Testament is? All right, so talk to one another. All right, you should, should have come up with something by now. Let's, let's just guess. What would you say is the very last word of the Old Testament or the book of Malachi? Amen. That's a good guess. Amen. God, okay. All right, what else? What she say? The, the day, okay, but the last, so I'm going to use the word Lord, since we're looking for the very last word. All right? Huh? Peace? <laughs> Peace. Well, <laughs> you? Is that what you said? Okay. Let me have one more so it, it'll be symmetrical here. Well, we got a blank. What, the very last word of, of the Old Testament. Wait, okay. I thought, I really thought somebody would say the end. 
but that's two words. Tom did. I, I figured Tom would. I really did. I thought Tom will say the end. All right. So the last word, the very last word of the Old Testament, very last word of the book of Malachi. You said it's amen, God, Lord, peace, you are wait. And you are wrong. And I would have been wrong as well, by the way. Just, we'll talk about it at the end. I'm going to save this for the very end, but I know you're just dying to know, and you're not going to be able to focus. Just open, open to the last book of the Old Testament. Look at the last word. We're not going to say it on camera, but just look at the last word. Does that surprise you? It, it really shocked me today. As I was looking over this material, as I was preparing again and, and, and looking through things, it really hit me what the last word is in the Old Testament. I know we've got different translations. We'll talk about that. And we'll come back to this at the end of the study. Okay? Just, just wanted to see if anybody would guess the last word. And of course, none of us probably would have guessed that, right? Okay. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now let me ask you a question that's uh, just more in a secular environment. How many of you ever worked in a store where you had to take inventory? Yeah, that's fun, isn't it? No, it's not. Uh, uh, what's the purpose of taking inventory? Say that again. Taxes. <laughs> okay. Know what you got. Yeah, know what you got. I remember when I worked for my dad at uh, Shorter's Appliance Service, Johnson City, Tennessee, uh, every year we'd have to count every part on the shelf, you know, and just just count, and, and that's small time stuff, you know, that's, that's a small, I can imagine going to a big store, a big factory, or a big company, and trying to account for everything there. But when you take inventory, you're trying to basically get an accurate picture of what you have. So you can pay taxes, I guess. Uh, here's the question. Have you ever done that in your relationship with God? You don't have to answer that out loud. But have you ever paused to take inventory in your relationship with God? Can I be honest with you that sometimes it's not a lot of fun? Sometimes what you find on the shelf, it's not always what you would want to be there. But sometimes taking inventory will give you a new directive in your life. Sometimes it will give you a new perspective of how you should be living your life. And that's essentially what we see in the last chapter of Malachi, which is, of course, the last chapter of the Old Testament. So open your Bibles. If you haven't gotten them open yet, go to Malachi chapter three and or chapter 4. But we want to set the stage by going back to chapter 3. Um, Remember what we looked at last week in verse 14. You have said it is futile to serve God. I mean, that, that is a bold statement, is it not? To say, you know, it's futile just to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What good did it do us? So we're taking inventory, and that was, that was their perspective. What good did it do us? They, they needed a new perspective. They needed a new directive. So Malachi ends his book by talking about, in, in the last chapter, he ends this book by closing the Old Testament by talking about something called the day of the Lord. 
What good did it do for us to serve God? What did we gain from serving Him? That was the way chapter 3 ended. And so Malachi in chapter 4, he concludes the book by saying, don't just focus on the present. What good did it do to serve God? Don't just focus, focus on now. You also need to focus on the future. You also need to be prepared for what's ahead. And, and so he goes on to say again in chapter 3, he talks about a second group. The first group, verse 14, what good is it to serve God? He reminds us that's not everybody. There's another group of people who are different. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, that's the other group. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And I love that phrase, the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. In other words, God is watching and he's taking notes. So stay faithful. Keep living out your faith. And then keep reading. Verse 17. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Notice this phrase. In the, they will be mine in the day. Notice that phrase. In the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. Look at that word. I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who serve God and those who do not. So in answer to the question, what good is it to serve the Lord? What have we gained out of that? Malachi's answer was basically, well... First of all, not everybody is in the same situation that you're in. Not, not everybody views God the way that you view Him. There is a faithful remnant who is still walking with God. But secondly, you need to understand there is a day coming where there, there will be a clear distinction between those who are serving God and those who are not. And Malachi ends his book talking about that day of distinction. A day that it's on God's calendar where it will be clear who is serving God and who is not. And that is the way Malachi is going to end his book and that is the way God is going to end the Old Testament. So, let's jump into chapter 4. I hope you're taking notes. I'm going to give you some things to write down. First of all, number one, we're just in this idea of taking inventory of our lives, we should take inventory because of the promise of God's return. Uh, or if you want to shorten that, you can just say the promise of God's return. Look at verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. Surely the day is coming. It refers to that final day of history when Christ returns and the world is judged. Malachi says, surely that day is coming. All of history is marching towards that time. And there are certain things that, that we can know about that day. First of all, it is a certainty, not just a possibility. In verse 1, he talks about, surely the day is coming. In the second part of verse 1, he says, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that it is coming will set them on fire. He emphasizes in that, in that verse a second time, that day, and it is coming. This is a certainty. Look in verse 5, and you'll see the same idea. 
See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. In other words, it is a certainty that this day is coming. And it, not only is it a certainty, it is a very specific day. It's re referred to in verse 1 as the day and that day. It's referred to in verse 5 as that great and dreadful day. It is basically the day God has circled on his calendar. And we need to remember that there is a day of reckoning ahead for everyone. There's coming a day when you will stand before God. I don't have time to dig into this, but if you want to write down this reference, 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. There is a day of reckoning. Let's, let's just at least read that. We won't take the time to really dig into it. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. For the Christian, we're going, to we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure you remember being in school. Some of you were very studious. You were straight A's. Uh, some of you probably were less than that. I don't mean that you were not as intelligent. I just mean maybe you approached your studies a little differently. Some of you, I'm guessing, this is just a guess, I'm guessing some of you perhaps didn't study as much as you could have. Uh, thank you for that confession, Dom, I see that hand. <laughs> I'm guessing some of you, and I'm going to talk about college right now, for example, I'm guessing some of you might have skipped a class or two along the way. Yeah. I'm guessing that some of you, perhaps, you didn't study like you could have or should have for some of those tests. I'm guessing that maybe some of you even slept in class, fell asleep in a lecture. But the professor always had a way of getting your attention because he or she would say, now, the final exam is on this day. You can skip class if you want to. You can sleep in class if you want to. You can not study for the test if you want to. It doesn't change the fact. The final exam is on this day. Ready for it or not, there will be a final exam on this day. In other words, the teacher's calendar at least should have motivated you to prepare. It should have motivated you to study. Because there is a day of reckoning for your class, for the subject you're studying. God is the same. There is a day of reckoning, a day, watch this, where God will right all wrongs. And where we will give an account of our lives. And so this is how the Old Testament ends. It ends by talking about the certainty, the certainty of that day of reckoning, the certainty of this day of the Lord. Surely, verse 1, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Now, the second point that I want you to write down if you're taking notes is this. There's a difference between those who are kingdom people and those who are not. There's a vast difference. 
between those who are kingdom people and those who are not. In, in verse 1, it talks about the judgment of those who, are not, those who are not kingdom people, those who are not God's people. And it really is referring to the judgment of hell. I want you to look at how it's described here. The judgment of hell. It says, Surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace. The judgment of hell. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. And then he says, not a root or a branch will be left to them. In other words, those who do not serve God, who do not know God, face this judgment. You know what hell is? Hell is a place where God finally and forever gives sinners everything that they wanted, which is separation from Him. Hell is the place where God says, okay, you've always wanted to be separate from me. You didn't want anything to do with me. Uh, you didn't want me involved in your life. And God says, okay, so let me, let me tell you about hell. Hell is the place where I will give you what you wanted, and it will be yours for eternity. Separated from Him. And it will be terrible. The Bible says it will burn like a furnace. And it will be total. I want you to notice these words here that are used to describe how hell will be a place of total destruction. It says, all, not some, all the arrogant and every, not most, but every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. And then he goes on to show the totality of this destruction. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So those who do not serve God face God's judgment. But then in verse 2, it changes gears, verses 2 and 3. And those who do serve God face a much different fate. A much different fate. In verse 1, it talks about the judgment of hell. And in verses 2 through 3, it talks about the joy of heaven. Can I tell you what heaven is? Heaven is the place where God finally gives His saints what they've always wanted which is communion with Him. You see the, the distinction, the difference? Hell is the place where God gives you what you've always wanted, separation from Him. You didn't want God in your life. You didn't want God to rule over your life. You didn't want anything to do with God. And hell is a place where God gives you what you've always wanted, which is separation from Him. And that separation will be total. And it will be everlasting. Heaven is just the opposite. Heaven is the place where God gives you what you've always wanted. Communion with Him. And that communion will be total and it will be forever. And it will never change. Here's how he describes it though. Look, look in this text. Here, here's what he says in verse two, th 2 and 3. But for you. Notice that word, of, that phrase of contrast. The Christian has nothing to fear. So the day, of the, the day of the Lord or the day of judgment should not be anything that you fear if you know Christ as Savior. And notice that phrase, but for you, a word of contrast. But for you, when you bring injured, I'm sorry, I skipped the page. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. 
Then you will trample down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Now he talks about three privileges that will be ours. We don't have time to get very deep into this, but he's, he talks about the, de, the delight or the day being a, a time of delight. And what I mean by that, he says in verse 2, that it's going to usher in this eternity. Look what he says. But for you who revere my name, watch this phrase, the sun is that S-U-N or S-O-N? All right, hang on to that. But for you who revere my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now what in the world is that? There really is a play on words here. The S-U-N, the sun of righteousness. Jesus uh, is referred to as the S-O-N, son of righteousness. It really is a play on words. Let me take you to the book of Luke. Go over to the, to the right and I'll show you, I, I believe, why Malachi says what he says. The book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. This is part of, of scripture that's called Zechariah's song. Zechariah, when he found out uh, that he was going to have a son, John the Baptist, Zechariah, broke out into song. And this is what he said in his song. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 78, picking it up, of course, in the middle uh, of his praise time. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God, by which the rising S-U-N, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Notice that phrase. This rising sun will come to us from heaven. And here's why, verse 79. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ. And it's symbolic language that the darkness of evil will one day vanish and the light of God will take its place. The sun of righteousness. This will be a day of delight, according to Malachi Chapter 4, verse 2, it will also be a day of deliverance. All of those things that bind us and hinder us, we will one day be delivered from those things. That's what it means. Look at this. I've never grown up on a farm. Maybe some of you have, but you probably can relate to this word picture that he gives us. He says, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. This will be a day of deliverance for many. Those things that have bound you, those things that have that have tied you up, those things that you have struggled with, those things that have hindered you, on this day, it will be a day of deliverance and you will be free from all of those struggles. You will be free from all of those problems. But most of all, this will be a day of distinction. Look what he says in verse 3, which is hard language for us to accept. It says, Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. A day of distinction. Now, let me say that I, I read this. I believe that this is symbolic language, not literal. And what I mean by that is, I really believe that it's just talking about this total triumph of godliness over the forces of evil. It's a word picture of how the righteousness in the world from God will conquer the forces of evil, triumphing, 
godliness will triumph over the forces of evil. And please notice, this is not because you're so special or you're so powerful. Look what it says in verse 3. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when, watch this, when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. He's the one that will make it possible. He's the one that will give you victory over that which is evil. When I do these things. Now, between now and the day of the Lord, between now and then, what should we do? How should we live between now and the day of the Lord? He tells us in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Basically, if I could translate that, let God's word guide you as you live out your days. As you live out your days between now and the day of the Lord. As you live out your life between now and the time when Jesus comes back. Just let the word of God guide you. Let the word of God feed you. Let the word of God be your source of instruction. Now. Come to verse 5. And he says in verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Never forget that there is a day of the Lord coming and he said and before that day comes I'm going to send my prophet Elijah. That day's coming. You can't stop it. You can't change it. You can't delay it. All you can do is prepare for it. But before that day comes, I want you to notice this note of mercy. This is so good. It is so good that the Old Testament ends with this note of mercy. Look what he says. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He's just talked about in verses 2 and 3 how awful that day is going to be. He says, but before that day comes, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. That word before means before judgment comes, God lovingly, mercifully is going to give us the invitation to repent. And then we have this idea of Elijah. Look at it again. I will send you the prophet Elijah. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. Does that mean literally Elijah himself, the Old Testament prophet, will come? Or is it a reference to someone else? I'll show you in a moment that I think it is clearly a reference not to the literal prophet Elijah, though some would interpret it that way. But rather, it is a reference to John the Baptist. That before this great day comes, he's going to send the prophet Elijah, or one like him, to offer us the invitation to repent before that great day comes. This is the mercy of God. This is how the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends by saying there is a day coming. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of wrath. But before that judgment comes, God is lovingly going to give us mercifully an invitation to repent. And when John the Baptist came on the scene, what was his message? Repent. So Pastor Keith, how do you know that's John the Baptist? We've looked at some of these scriptures recently, but let's look at them again. Go over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, to give you the context of what we're about to read. The angel 
announces to Zechariah about the birth of his son. And it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, this is the angel speaking, and he says, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in power of who, church? Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We didn't read verse 6 yet, but that's exactly what verse 6 says. Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 says, I'm going to send you the prophet of Elijah and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the father. Guess what? In the, when the New Testament opens up, the angel speaks to Zechariah and says, listen, there's one coming. In fact, he's going to be your son. And let me tell you what he's going to do. Verse 17, he will go on before the Lord. He will come before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. And here's why. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the, uh, of righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A direct fulfillment of Malachi 4.6. Well, okay, that's one reference. Go over to the left, find the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 12 through 14. Watch this. Jesus is speaking and he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. But all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, watch this, verse 14. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. You, if you do cross-references in your Bible, you might want to go to Malachi 4, 5, and 6 and write in this reference. When it says John the Baptist, I'll send the um, where it says Elijah, the prophet Elijah, write in this reference to Matthew. Look what he says. Jesus is speaking, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. One more reference, and then we'll move on and conclude. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 12, through 13, 12 and 13. In verse 12, Jesus is speaking about to tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then Matthew makes this comment, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Oh, oh, that's what, a lot, that's what Malachi was talking about, right? Yeah, that's what Malachi was talking about. Oh, okay. So let's go back again to see how the Old Testament ends. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. And here's what we read. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. God in his mercy will send a forerunner to call people to repent before the great day comes. Then he says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else, watch this, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Notice this phrase, or else. God gives us a choice. He gives a choice to everyone. He says, you've got this choice. That's what that word, or else, means. We all have a choice. But you need to understand that every choice has a consequence. 
He says, here's the choice. I'll send you Elijah or one like him who can turn your heart to the Lord. Or else, I'll come and strike the land first. Now, prior to tonight's study, if I had asked you, what's the last word of the Old Testament? You would have given me answers like this. And mine would have been one of those two. This word curse, it's interesting that it's the last word of the Old Testament. Now, for some of you, your translation may say total destruction. Most translations, I've looked at a lot of translations today, most of the translations say curse, but a few of them, I found two actually, that uses the term utter or total destruction. And that really is the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word of the Old Testament, the last word of the Old Testament, it it literally means total destruction, absolute destruction. The word means, but it's more than just something that's destructed or destroyed. The word actually means, watch this, something or someone has been designated for total destruction. It's not just the idea of total destruction, but something or someone or something has been designated for total destruction. I'll give you a a real quick story. I told you a moment ago, my dad used to have an appliance repair store and, and I worked there for him for a little while and and one of the things, one of my favorite, when I was a teenager especially, one of my favorite things to do, uh, occasionally we would get an appliance that was still under factory warranty, but the customer refused it. Uh, they've had too much problems with it. And, they, you know, there was this back and forth between the factory rep and the customer. And eventually the factory rep would give in and say to dad, just scrap that, that washer. We're going we're to give him the money back. Or just scrap that motor. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to, to give him a new one. Just scrap that part. We're going to get... So my job as a young teenager, my job is that I love, the part of my job that I actually love is when he'd say, Keith, go back there and scrap that washer. But the factory said we need, the factory said we need to scrap it. In other words, watch this, it was designated for destruction. And guess who got to go destroy it? I love that part of my job. I'd go back there with hammer and I'd just beat on that thing as much as I wanted to. i go back there with, with cutters, and I'd cut every wire in that thing. I'd go back there. I mean, I just destroyed that thing because it was designated for destruction. That's the last word of the Old Testament. Curse means designated for destruction. Because of the sin that has plagued our world, it has been designated for destruction. But watch this. When the New Testament opened, God says, But we've got a plan to take the curse away. That's what Jesus is all about. We are all designated for destruction. But God in His goodness and God in His grace had a plan to take the curse away. 
In fact, I want you to go to the book of Revelation. This will be our last reference. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. The last chapter of the Bible has something very similar to the last word of the Old Testament. Revelation 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. Watch this, verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. You ought to underline that. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Why? Because in verse 3 it says and there will no longer be any curse. The curse and all the darkness that has been flooding our world. In God's grace, through Jesus, He removes the curse. And that's how the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends with this word, curse. And the New Testament opens with the one sent to remove the curse. God is good. Pray with me. We are grateful, God, that in your grace and in your goodness, you have not destroyed us, though we deserve it. We are grateful that you have made a way and you have given us a choice. And we know that there is a day coming. As clearly as the last chapter of the Bible or the Old Testament talks about it, there is a day coming. A day when you will finally judge the world. You will finally judge sin. We, we, we understand that day of judgment is fastly approaching. But God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he became a curse for us. He took our penalty. He took our pain. He took our sin. He took our punishment. So that we could have an eternal relationship with you. Thank you for your word, for instructing us tonight in your word, and for reminding us of your goodness and your grace. Thank you most of all for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray.
God bless you. Thank you so much. Don't forget to let me know if you'd be interested in that topic uh, in the next week or two. All right.